0: So we, we are in our series, new series called Words from the Mountain. It's from the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. And now, let me tell you this. Jesus could easily be argued to be the most influential person to have walked the face of the earth. And in this series, The Words from the Mountain, we are going to be looking at some of his most famous teachings, and as you're looking at these teachings, something's going to happen to you. You're going to hear the way he tells you to live, and it's going to make you incredibly uncomfortable, because the way he's telling you to live is beyond your ability to do, and it's going to make you very uncomfortable, the things that he tells you to live, and and that, what I said right there, here is why you can't approach Jesus like a teacher. Because if you come to him like a teacher, the problem is he's going to say things and you're not going to be able to live the way he's telling you to live. So what you really need him to be is not just a teacher, but a savior. You need him to be a rescuer, a wise rescuer who has everything that you need to empower you to live the way that he's calling you to live. And that's what you need, a wise rescuer. Now, I want you to think of this. Think of three different types of people. So one type of person, they walk into a room, and they have such a presence about them that when they walk in the room, it's like the, the room shifts to them. They, they change the culture. They're, they just have a presence about them. You'll hear people say this about famous people or very powerful people that something about them, you can feel them in a room. There's another type of person, the second type of person, and when they walk into a room, they, they go unnoticed. And what they're doing is they're molding to the room. The room doesn't shift to them, they shift to the room, and they enter into the culture of the room, and they they just kind of fit in. But there's a third type of person, and they walk into the room, but they go a bit unnoticed. But as they stay in the room long enough, something starts to happen to the people in the room. They get to know this person, and those people's hearts start to change, and the culture of the room starts to change. See, what happened with this person, the first person, when they walk in the room and they've just got this presence, people are modifying their behavior to this person's presence. But when this third type of person walks in the room, this third type of person is changing the hearts of the people in the room. And this type of person is spending time with the people in the room, getting to their heart, getting to their wounds, getting to the things that are wrong with them. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He comes into the room, diagnoses the problem, but then he's the healer, he's the rescuer, and then he empowers us to live the way he's calling us to live. So there's a common leadership saying that says, uh, don't be a thermometer, uh, be a thermostat. You guys heard this before? So a thermometer takes the temperature, a thermostat changes the temperature. So come on, be the thermostat, yeah, be the thermostat, you change the temperature in the room. But I don't think that's it. I think actually what, what the third type of person does is they walk into the room And they take the temperature of the room. They're they're feeling the weight of what's happening in the room. And they're finding what's wrong, but then they become a healer and a rescuer. And they begin to change the room. So they're doing both. They're taking the temperature, but they're also changing the temperature. And that's exactly what Jesus does, and that's who Jesus is to you. He is the rescuer, healer, that is also the teacher. And what's going to happen is if you go to Jesus, and you don't make him your teacher you're never going to see how to live the way you would live in the kingdom of god you're going to miss the ethic of the kingdom of god you're going to miss the standards of the kingdom of god but if you don't make him your rescuer you'll never have the ability to live the way he's calling you to live and people will typically do one or the other he's a great teacher uh, i don't really see a need for the church this this idea of him being a rescuer that's crazy he didn't rise from the dead he's just a good teacher or if you just make him this grand rescuer, but you don't listen to his words, they don't, don't let them challenge you, then you don't ever live the way he's calling you to live. So you got to hold both of them up. Rescuer and teacher, teacher and rescuer at the same time. And so in this sermon, this is a grand sermon, he goes up on the mountain, and as he does this, this is the big picture of everything I just said, he's holding up teacher-rescuer, I am the one on the mountain who's rescuer and teacher, and then, and then he begins to speak the first parts of this sermon that come right from the Beatitudes, what's called the Beatitudes, and here's what you've got to know about this. It's essential that you get this, what I'm about to say. They are short and simple one-liners. That's what these Beatitudes are. I'm going to read one of them today. And they have been called by Christian scholars to be the most profound words that have ever been spoken. Do you hear that? The most profound words that have ever been spoken are right here. And in the, in the, the beatitude that we're looking at today is probably the most important one. It's what all the others flow out of. And if you're going to listen for the rest of the series, you've got to hold this, what I'm about to tell you today in this beatitude today, you've got to hold this in the, in the forefront of your mind as you listen to everything else. So in other words, this beatitude is incredibly important. So here it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So first, in order to understand the Beatitudes, you've got to understand this first word, blessed. And The word, this word can mean a few different things. So this is how you typically hear the word, and you're wrong to read it this way. So you typically hear this as a wish. Like, someone is sick, so we say, God, bless this person. In other words, God, help them be healed. And that's right, to pray pray that prayer and to use that word, except that's not the way that word is used right here. Right here, this word is meant to mean someone who has an inner state of happiness, there's something about what's going on inside them where they are incredibly spiritually healthy. And by being spiritually healthy, they have an inner happiness. And so I want, I want you to see what happens here now. So you take someone who's blessed, so they're spiritually happy, they're spiritually healthy, and you take a spiritually healthy person and guess what starts happening to them? They begin to become emotionally healthy. Because by being emotionally healthy, here's what happens. If you're not emotionally healthy, you become depressed, you're anxious, you're worried about things. Things are going crazy in your life and you start feeling the weight of what's happening in your life and you become incredibly unhealthy emotionally. It's because you're unhealthy spiritually, but it's not done there. So then because you're emotionally unhealthy, you start becoming physically unhealthy because stress takes years, years off your life. You're depressed, so you're not eating well, you're not sleeping well, and it's wreaking havoc on your life all because you're not spiritually healthy, but it's not just ending there. When you are emotionally unhealthy, you become relationally unhealthy. So when relationships break apart, it's usually because there's some emotional unhealth happening. Friendships are breaking apart, there's something emotionally unhealthy going on, and it's all because there's something spiritually unhealthy going on. So you see how important it is? You've got to, you have got to be spiritually healthy. You have to have this inner state of being where you are spiritually healthy and happy. And the way to do this, well, let me say this before I say that. So for the Hebrews in the Old Testament, the way they used this, understood this word blessed is they would look at someone whose life is equally as hard as theirs. But they would see that person with that equally as hard life, and they would be happy and healthy spiritually, and they would look upon them with envy. Now, a few weeks ago, because we didn't meet last week, it was like, man, you should listen to everything that I tell you because, like, I was talking about hurricanes two weeks ago, and we didn't know hurricane was coming. And I, here's what I said. The, the, person who's, <laughs> the person who's blessed is like someone who is in a storm like everybody else, but they're in the eye of the storm. So everybody was texting me like, man, it's crazy you were talking about that. I totally understand it now even more because of this hurricane coming through. Like they're sending me images of what it looks like in the eye of the storm and it looks like there's just chaos happening all around this wall of the storm, but in the middle, it's calm, it's cool, it's collected. Everything is good. And so for the person who's blessed, it doesn't mean that their life is better situationally. It means they have an inner state of being that is happy and healthy, because of what's going on with them and God. And so the chaos of life happens to everyone. But the person who is blessed is emotionally healthy because they're spiritually healthy. Now, this is, is, let me say it this way. Your circumstances do not get better because you're blessed. Blessed. But in another way, they do. Here's why. Here's what I'm saying. Don't miss this. Here's what I'm saying. When you are spiritually healthy, you become emotionally healthy. And guess what now? You're wiser. And because you're wiser, you make better decisions. So you look at someone and you keep seeing them make horrible decisions over and over and over again. Why are they making these horrible decisions? So you trace it back. It's because they're emotionally unhealthy. And then it's because they're spiritually unhealthy. So it is incredibly important for you to find spiritual health. Now, how do you find it? you got to understand this word, poor in spirit. Everything we read from here on out is meant to be understood under this line, poor in spirit. Okay, so that's confusing because I'm telling you to be poor in spirit when I just told you to be spiritually healthy. So are you spiritually poor or spiritually healthy? Well, the spiritually healthy person is spiritually poor. Here's what this means. If you are spiritually poor, it means you are spiritually bankrupt, meaning you are morally bankrupt, meaning this. You approach God with nothing. Morally, you have nothing to bring to God, and the person who is poor in spirit realizes that. And so they come to God, not bringing anything good that they have done, but just coming and saying, God, have mercy on me. Be gracious to me. And then God pours his mercy and his grace down upon them, and they are filled. So what's just happened. They have been emptied in order to be filled up. That's the basic concept of Christianity is you come to God empty-handed. You know that. Like, that's how you're coming to God, fully empty-handed, and then he, he gives you this gift of grace. Now, what's this gift of grace? The gift of grace is an exchange. Your record for Christ's record. You take your moral bank account, and then Christ comes on the scene, and he says, let's trade. You can have mine. I came into the world, I lived a perfect life, it's yours, give me yours. He takes ours and gives us his. And then he goes and dies on the cross, holding on to your moral record. Did you hear that? Like, this is amazing. So here's, like, if you've not done this, here's what you need to do right now. You need to go to God and realize that Christ has taken your moral bank account and he's taken it as his own, and he's given you his moral bank account. And so here's what that means. You've just hit the moral jackpot, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf and credited to you. Is that fair? Nope. But it's amazing. And it's just what God wanted to do. You know, I know, I know, I know, we want to keep track of what's fair. And maybe you're like, always watching. That's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair. fair. If you're always saying that, you've got to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Because here's why. The Christian realizes that they have received something that is not fair at all, and it was a beautiful and a gracious gift. And so because they've received it, they don't care what's fair. They don't want what's fair. They're just embracing something that they didn't deserve at all, and they're taking it, and they're making it their own, and they're seeing how much God loves them, and they're overwhelmed by it. So they don't care what's fair anymore. The Christian did not get what was fair. They got what was gracious and merciful. The blessed person who is poor in spirit would never try to say that they're getting what is fair because they came to God with nothing and they left with everything. That's not fair, but it's the very thing that makes you want to worship God. You know this. You don't... Worship God because he's giving you what you deserve. You worship God because he's giving you something that you didn't deserve. And it's amazing. And so you respond in worship. If worshiping God doesn't make any sense to you, then this doesn't make any sense to you. So I've been doing these videos on Facebook, and um, I've created some ads for people to get who know nothing about our church. And um, they've been a little bit controversial. So there's a guy that that came on, and he wrote, like, he's very, like, upset and, and he said, I don't believe in God, um, so are you saying that if you do all of this really good stuff, but you don't believe in God, like, that you don't get to go to heaven, and here's what he's arguing for. He's arguing for what is fair. He's arguing for, for what we deserve, but the person who is poor in spirit would never do that. I want to beg of you never to go to God and say, God, give me what is fair, You don't want what is fair. You want grace. You want mercy. You know, and people who are like, yeah, yeah, they get it. Like they felt the weight of what they have done in their life and how they've messed up. And I'm going to tell you this. We're all like, we're all measuring ourselves up and we're all thinking, okay, God should love me because of this. He should accept me because of this. Even though we might, if we're a Christian, maybe we even know we shouldn't do it, but we keep on doing it over and over and over again. Take the grace, because here's what you're doing a lot of times. You're looking at the people around you in your life, and you're like, ah, God must really love me, because look at them. Maybe like the person next to you, like, look at them. God, you're welcome, God. I'm here, and I am doing it right. The person who is poor in spirit would never say that because they have felt the weight of their depravity and they felt the forgiveness that they've been given and it feels so very good. So they would never say, uh, they would never start comparing themselves to somebody else. Why are people doing that in the church all the time? Because they're not getting it. Because they've missed the message. It's a huge problem in the church because the message is getting missed. You might, you could do this, you might be able to make the argument Like, you're good compared to other people in the world. But that's, you know what that's like? That's like being the best of murderers and the best of wife beaters and being like, oh, you go to God with your little white wife beater on. You're like, God, I am the best wife beater that there is. And he's like, oh, okay, good. Like, that's what we're arguing for, though. It is. That's what we're making arguments to to, to God for. Um, King David was poor in spirit. And he writes in the Psalms, the songs are, are songs to God. And so he writes this song to God, and he says, no one is good, no, not even one. Like, that's someone who's poor in spirit. He's, he is putting a blanket statement on a, all of humanity saying nobody's good. But that's someone who's felt the weight of being what it means to be poor in spirit. And so it led him to go to God for grace and mercy, and he receives it, and he eats it all up, and it changes him to the core. or think about it like this. You're either going to approach God right now and at the end of your life, but watch how you do it. You're either going to approach God with your record or Christ's record. So you want something in life. You're going to approach God with your moral bank account or, or Christ's moral bank account. So here's what you do. You go to God and you bargain with him, and you're like, God, I really want this in my life. I'm going to clean up my life a little bit here, and by doing that, I want you to give me this. What you're bargaining towards God with is saying, God, I'm going to do this and I want you to give me what's fair because I'm going to do this and that's fair for you to do. What are you doing? You go to God with Christ's moral bank account, the jackpot that he's given you and say, God, your son has come for me. He's died for me. He's risen for me. My record is wiped clean and now you love me as much as you love your son. So I'm coming to you, not like an orphan, but a son. And I'm asking you, can you give me this? That is a completely different thing. And He's going to give you exactly what you need because you're His son or His daughter. And you got to believe that and you got to trust that. The poor in spirit approach the Father in heaven with a smile on their face because they know what they've been given. And they go to the Father and they're like, look at what, look at what your son has done for me. Look at what I have. Take this. Look at what I have. And, and the Father wraps his arms around you and you feel like an orphan that's been looking for your father your whole life that finally you have found him and he embraces you and it's what you've been longing for all along. And if you don't bring Christ record, you'd have a major problem because here's what you'd be doing. You'd be standing before God at best and saying, look, I'm the nicest of those who are most vile. Love me. And I realize that's potentially offensive. But watch what happens. If God turns a blind eye to sin, then that means he isn't just anymore. And so that means if God is just, he's got to be loving and he's got to be just, but he's got to be 100% loving and he's got to be 100% just. And so if he just turns a blind eye to sin, then guess what? You don't get heaven. Because the thing of heaven is perfect. Everything's just there. Everything is the way that it's meant to be. And so if we are like, God, let me get into heaven without my record being wiped clean, then we're entering into a place that's perfect and we're tainting it. We're making it not perfect anymore so it's no longer heaven. So as soon as you do that, you lose heaven. God just gives you what we have here. And we know this is not what we want. The poor in spirit are happy internally because they have seen that the justice and the wrath that God has for sin has been satisfied by Christ on the cross and he took all of it on himself. And when he did that, now that person who is poor in spirit realizes everything's been handled, everything's good, God's got nothing but love for me. So I'm good. He took what you deserve so you could get what he deserves. Just think about that like all week. I mean, come on. You got to go give him a hug in your soul or something. Like, and if, if you're ever having a hard time worshiping God, it's because you lost sight of that. And think about this. Okay, so let's go ahead and do it. Let's take away the justice of God. Let's just say God's going to turn a blind eye to it all do that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to see no need to worship God. Because now you've minimized his love. Because guess what? The result of his love and justice, his relentless love and his relentless justice coming together, do you know what it, it, it meets its climax at? Right at the cross. And as it goes, as you see the cross, you realize, wow, that is God's justice, and it is God's love, and that really is the only door and the only path to paradise. Everything's been handled, and as soon as you minimize his justice, you're now minimizing his love because you, you lose the cross. You say, ah, no, God doesn't need to be just. You just lost the cross, and by losing the cross, you no longer have a God who's willing to show his love for you as the cross, which the cross is the greatest display of love the cosmos will ever know, and now you don't want to worship God. So coming here seems senseless. Praying seems senseless. Reading your Bible seems senseless because why would you? This is not a God that's worthy of worship anymore. And, okay, so as we're going to walk through this series, you're going to hear Jesus say some things that are pretty crazy and offensive. So let me give you an example, and he's trying to make you poor in spirit. So he says, um, he says if, if you have ever felt anger for anybody ever, you are like a murderer. And here's what he's saying, and some of you right now, like that's offensive, and some of you are, are mad at me for saying that, so now you're murdering me. That's rude. So think, about, so think about anger like a kernel, like a popcorn kernel. You apply enough heat to that kernel, it's going to pop. And what Jesus is saying is that if, if you are capable of a little bit of anger, apply enough heat to that anger, and now you're capable of murder. Now, maybe some people could handle more heat, but either way, it's the kernel. It's the same thing. Or then he talks about lust, and he says, if you lust over a woman, you have committed adultery. Now, this is crazy. So, like, take, uh, take a, a little dude in middle school. Has any type of lust at all? He's just committed adultery with his future wife. It's crazy. This is what Jesus is saying. If you have a dream that is lustful at all, you've just committed adultery. You say, well, I can't control my dream. Of course you can control your dream. It come from your heart. You see what he's doing? Like, he's taking us and making us completely poor in spirit so we have we realize we have nothing to bring to the table. He's like leveling it. He's making us this cripple that's at the table. I mean, he wants you to realize that you don't just have, like, an empty bank account morally. You are in the negative. Some of you morally... Was that really that funny? Okay. You surprised me at your jo- the jokes that you laugh at. It wasn't... A m- no, no, no. Your, your moral... Oh, yeah. You know, your moral bank account is completely drained. Um, I don't know what's going to happen to your actual literal bank account. That's yeah, up to you. I mean, you, you make your decisions. But why is he doing this? Why is he making us like our moral bank account showing us it's in the negative. Is he doing it because it's me? he's mean? No, he's doing it out of love. So he's speaking the truth in love to you so that you might see your need because we have no idea how much we need him. We're just numb to him. We're turning a, a blind eye to him. We're not really thinking about our need for him. Like think about how often we're thinking about God, very little. And so what, what does he do? He makes us feel like convicted. He's emptying you to fill you, and this is a pattern you see all throughout the Bible. It's upside down. Like, the kingdom of God is upside down. Let me show you. So, every other religion is going gonna, is gonna to put a door at the end. So, if, if you want to get to paradise, if you want to get to nirvana, if you want to get to whatever it is, the door is at all the way at the end, and you got to do enough good stuff to finally get through that door, but the Christianity laughs at that. Actually, Christianity cries at that because here's why. The more you, the poor in spirit person realizes that that the more they live their life, the more in the negative they become. Spiritually, not literally, read. Just just their their being, their moral bank account is getting more and more negative. Their debt is growing and growing and growing. And so, so they realize this and they say, okay, I have nothing to bring to the table. Here's what Christianity does. It puts the door right in the beginning. Right there, in the beginning. And by faith, you walk through that door. And as soon as you walk through that door, trusting that his record is being given to you, you have now entered into the kingdom of God. And now guess what happens? All the power of God's kingdom, all the strength, the inner strength that you need to live in God's kingdom is given to you. And now you can more and more every single day grow into who you're made to become in the kingdom of heaven. That's completely different. You're not perfect yet, nowhere close, but you've started your journey of becoming more and more like the moral bank account that you've been given until one day when all things are made right and you, are, you live as perfectly as you're meant to live. So here's what happens to you. In one sense, you know you aren't perfect, and it's okay. Like, you sin, and you say, it's okay, God has me covered. But there's another part of you that, because you're of the kingdom of God now, you don't like that you sinned, and so you want to change. But it's not crushing you. You're just now motivated. You have the power to change and live differently now that you did not have before. And it's not because you want, have to. It's because you want to. But before any of this happens, you first have to be emptied. And so this is what Jesus is trying to get to happen. He's trying to convict you. He's trying to get you to feel the weight of your sin and what you've done. And, okay, so it seems a little mean, but it's not. (laughs) He wants you to feel the terror of what it would feel like for you to come and bring your moral bank account into the presence of a holy God. He wants you to feel the terror of what that would feel, and he lets you sit in it for a little bit. But then he says, hold on. Here's my grace. Take it. And you say, what have I done to deserve this? He says, nothing. I just love you. And I couldn't stand the thought of you drinking up the wrath for the sin that you've done. And so I'm going to drink it up myself. And I'm going to take it in your place. And you know what that feels like? You know, when, when someone survives a hurricane and they stay and they barely live through it, they are happy that they have survived. But if someone has left and they come back, and they see the destruction, they're sad. Same thing has happened, but someone's been rescued, and your sin feels like a ton of bricks sitting on you, and some of you guys, you have no idea what it feels like to just let these bricks come off, and you're feeling the weight of your sin every single day, and it's killing you, it's destroying you, and it's making you emotionally unhealthy, it's making you socially unhealthy, and you feel the weight of the sin, and you're just longing for it to be lifted, and Jesus comes up to you, and he says, give me, give me, Give it to me. I can carry this. Let me take it for you. So here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to be courageous and bold. And I want you to really take an honest look at your sin, the way that Jesus is looking at it. And just feel the weight of it. He wants you to be terrified. But then... Here's what happens. The door opens up. The door of this world opens up. And Christ, the king, enters into the room. And he goes unnoticed for a long time. I mean, literally God has come into creation and we, uh, we did not notice him. But he comes in and he starts interacting with us. And he starts speaking to you. And he starts saying things to you that are convicting you. But he's being gentle about it because he knows how volatile we are when it comes to our sin and how much we don't want to hear about it and how if we hear too much, we're going to take off running the other way. So he very slowly makes us feel the terror more and more and more until we can't bear it anymore. And then he holds his hand out and he says, let me take it. And when he takes it from you, he becomes clothed in all that we have done wrong. And he goes up upon the cross in the wrath that the Father has for all of my sin and yours. All the world's sin is thrust down upon him. And he is crushed under the weight of the Father's wrath for the sin of the world. And he's crushed underneath the weight of it. And he dies underneath the weight of it. But then he rises from the dead. He gives you his perfect record and he gives you the power of the resurrection where you can now live differently. You just have to go to him. You just have to go spend time with him. Stop holding back from going to him. Stop hesitating. Empty yourself so he can fill you. Father, we thank you that you've given us this gift. And we pray now that as we're preparing to take communion together, that you would prepare our hearts for what we're about to do. God, that you would rearrange our priorities and our importances, and that we would see you as priority over all things right now in this moment. Let us see the beauty of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.